We do believe that there is a special calling, I believe, and I think you can make a case for this, and the Reformers make a case for it. There is a special calling for the office of minister to which one gives one's life. Thank you for tuning in to episode 132 of Mid-America Reformed Seminary's Roundtable Podcast. In this broadcast, the faculty of Mid-America discuss Reformed theology and cultural issues, all from a Reformed perspective. I'm Jared Luchabor, Director of Marketing. In today's episode, Dr. Alan Strange looks once again at the Office of Minister of the Word and Sacrament, tracing its history, especially in the eyes of the Reformers. Check it out. Well, Jared, it's great to be back with you and our listeners again to talk a bit more about the question of do minister and elder hold the same office? And we said yes and no. We said yes in as much as the minister is also a church governor, and we said no insofar as the ruling elder is not a minister of word and sacrament, but primarily a governor of the church together with the other ruling elders and ministers. And we were looking at a number of things. We were looking at uh, some of the considerations in in the Bible a bit. We were looking particularly at historical considerations. And we noted that the Reformers, part of their genius is, though there were these problems that came in in the ancient church and medieval church with understanding office and the notion that you have uh, working together with the clergy, that is the ministerium, the episcopoi, uh, and as they deemed it, the presbyteroi, you have also a lay governor, you might say, somebody who is not a full-time minister in the way that that parish priests and bishops were, but who also has a job, that tends to, that fades out of view altogether. And what you really witness, especially in the Middle Ages, is what we could call the clericalization of the church. The clergy come to stand for the whole church and the people, the laity, and that's all laity means. It's not a bad word. It's just laos, meaning people. The people fade into insignificance. Um, they're, they're, you can you can see this one little way you can see this is in the use of the word vocation. Um, as I said, everyone has we believe everyone as a part of the general office of believer, as part of the priesthood of all believers, has a calling to serve Christ in all of their lives, whatever it is they do. Uh, but in the Middle Ages, vocation came to be very restricted and limited. So that if I were to stop you on a a roadway, we were to meet. Uh, out somewhere in the public, perhaps traveling, and you you had on uh, some sort of what would be called clericals, clerical dress, and I had on some, and I said, brother, fratres, what is your vocation? What I would be asking you is, that's the word for calling, vocation means calling, and I'm specifically asking you, of what religious order are you a part? Uh, and I think that calling and calling comes to be restricted to religious order and the religious life. So the religious have a calling. They would speak of the the clergy had two orders, the uh, regular clergy, those who lived according to the rule, those are the monks, the nuns, 
And then secondly, the secular clergy, you might find that an odd way of speaking, but secular is from secular in the world. That's the parish priest. And so if you would ask somebody what your vocation is, you're asking them about that. And you don't expect them to say, as Dr. Venema has said in an article, but I think he was quoting something of common knowledge, a butcher, a baker, or a candlestick maker. You don't expect them to say that because you don't believe those things are a calling in any sense of the word. Uh, We do believe that there is a special calling, I believe, and I think you can make a case for this, and the Reformers make a case for it. There is a special calling for the office of minister to which one gives one's life that's, you might say, a bit more striking and a bit more central in the understanding of the one receiving such a call vis-a-vis someone who is called to some service as a ruling elder or called to service as a deacon. Because when you're called to the gospel ministry, there is a real sense of I'm to give all that I am and have and do to this. I'm to prepare for this. And of course, part of what has in the development of things come to be theological seminaries is helping people prepare for that. And that's what we seek to do here at MidAmerica, to help prepare men whom the church has sent to us and said, we see some gifts and calling and we think this brother might have actually the calling to be a minister. Um, They come and they study with us. We don't give them a single gift. God alone is the giver of every gift. We don't give anybody a gift. But if the church recognizes some gifts and they want to make a test of them, they can send them to seminary and the seminary can help and work with the church to help that man develop and refine his gift, to bring it into a place uh, that is most serviceable to the church. So um, that's that's something that we think is very important, the, the call to the ministry. Uh, so, so we don't downgrade the call to the ministry. We don't downgrade that men are called to other special offices uh, in, a, in a less intense way, you might say, because they continue their other vocations. Uh, and we don't downgrade that men, that everybody has a call, men and women and boys and girls to the general office of believer. So I think we have a very good balance there. It's important to, to also realize this, that when the reformers argued for parity of office, we sometimes hear the language of parity of office, they meant two things in particular. They meant a complete parity between the presbyter, which as I said had come to be understood as the parish priest, and the bishop. They rejected, in other words, the distinction between higher and lower clergy. And it's not that they, they couldn't see a function. And, and, and again, I had to answer this recently. They said, you know, is this not a denial of parity of office? I had an inquiry from a larger Presbyterian church, a church of hundreds of people, and I've gotten these before. And they said, you know, we have a, a senior pastor and we want to have some associates in these areas. But if they have some reporting to him... Uh, rather than directly to the body that governs the session in this case or the consistory uh, or council in other cases, uh, isn't that a denial of parity of office? And I said, well, it is a denial of parity of office if you think he holds a different office rather than has a different function within an office. Uh, and so, uh, for example, and I, I keep mentioning the OPC, I know that the best, uh, I have written a commentary. I just finished it 
uh, very recently. I've written a commentary on our form of government uh, that will also be published. It's been serialized in a publication called Ordained Servant, which is online. You can go look at that. Um, and it's a commentary on our Book of Church Order. It will be published separately together with a commentary on our Book of Discipline, which I'm working on right now. Uh, but the I have here, and Jared can attest to it, other church orders. I have the Manual of the Christian Reformed Church. I have the the famous orange book, at least I, I think it may still be. My copy is the Book of Church Order of the RCA. I have uh, the P. I have a PCA Book of Church Order here. I have the URC articles uh, from the Church Order. Um, so uh, I have all these church orders here, and and we do a lot of comparative study here at Mid America because we teach people from all these traditions. I didn't mention additionally the RCUS. We have people from that, and I've taught out of that church order, as well as the uh, Reformed Church in New Zealand. We've had some good uh, brothers from there. So RC and Z, uh, RCUS, URCNA, of course, we have a number from that. Uh, they get taught especially by Dr. Venema, who is quite knowledgeable, uh, especially on the reform side of polity. I've studied it a, a, a fair bit myself. Uh, but uh, he teaches that specifically here, and I teach specifically the Presbyterian side. We, we teach some in common. I teach some uh, class, some of the classes, for example, discipline. When we talk about church discipline, we meet together, though he will point out particulars from the URCNA or the CRC or the RCA. Have I left out anybody? I think I've hit the main, the main reformed bodies um, and Presbyterian bodies that we serve, but back to the notion of parity of office, uh, the reformers rejected uh, the distinction between a higher and lower clergy, and they also were arguing for a parity of rule between the minister and the newly recovered office of lay governor, elder, which office had in the development of prelacy, as it would be called, that is the hierarchical, the strict hierarchy that developed as a part of the Roman approach. The, the office of, of elder, of lay governor, had fallen out of the church, uh, with the diaconate itself being a first step in attaining priestly office. Remember I said that, that everything was clericalized in the Middle Ages. So some of you might be thinking, well, what about a deacon? Well, okay, subdeacon or deacon would be the first step to becoming a presbyter. So you would enter... A, it might be a, what's called a subdiaconate or diaconate. You would be in that for a bit, and then you might enter in, into a, a presbyter role. And there were, there were higher ones than that. You might be a monsignor, uh, a suffragan bishop moving up into the rank of the episcopoi, and there were various ones in that. Separate from that were the so-called princes of the church who formed the group that elects the pope. That comes and receives shape early in the Middle Ages, the College of Cardinals. And in the College of Cardinals, there are some who are priests, cardinals. There are some who are more are bishop cardinals. Again, you might, you might think of a cardinal as somebody above an archbishop, but that's not really the way it works. You have archbishop, you have what primates of, of, of cities, metropolitans. So as I said, the reformers argued for parity of office and what they meant was uh, that the the newly captured office of ruling elder, especially, uh, was equal 
as a governor to the office of minister of word and sacrament, uh, and that the deacon also was to be fully respected uh, as a layperson in that office. Just to say this about some of the additional exegetical considerations, I think Edmund Clowney is right uh, when he says that the pastorals in particular and the New Testament in general are not a book of church order, which is to say that we we need to see the foundation and origins of church office in the Old Testament. And we especially need to understand that the eldership uh, receives its grounding in the Old Testament, uh, the, the collective entity of leaders known as the elders, the Hazakanim, uh, is referred to more than a hundred times in the Old Testament. Uh, and um, the elders of the people or the elders in the gates uh, is referring to that. And we see the New Testament office, and that office was a distinct office from the Levites. It, it wasn't a teaching office, uh, a priestly office. It was a distinct office. These were leaders among the people. And you can think of it this way, in fact, that in the Old Testament, you could diagram it this way. Uh, you have Levites or priests uh, reflecting one part of governance and rule, and then together with them, the elders who are the rulers in the gates. And you come to Acts 15, and the apostles replace the Levites. That that office has passed away. That priestly office has passed away in that sense. And the apostles are the one who are declaring the word of God in this way. But you still have, think of Acts 15. What does it say? Who does it say you had there? The apostles and the elders. So you still have those. You think of the elders of the people. Here they are. So you could say that's kind of a clerical and lay representation. And then you come to the New Testament. Um, I, I understand Acts 15 is in the New Testament, but the New Testament church is being foundationally laid. And then when you get to the book, uh, the, to the pastorals, you have that foundation laid and you have ministers and elders still continuing. Timothy was ordained by the laying on of the hands of the presbytery. Uh, it was the Ephesian presbytery or the presbyteroi that went out to in Acts 20 that Paul spoke to and addressed and gave that wonderful farewell to. And then this gets picked up in the Westminster uh, form of Presbyterial Church government uh, in this way. It says, as there were in the Jewish church elders of the people joined with the priests and Levites in the government of the church, so Christ, who hath instituted government and governors ecclesiastical in the church, hath furnished some in his church beside the ministers of the word with gifts for government and with commission to execute the same when called thereunto who are to join with the minister in the government of the church, which officers reformed churches commonly call elders. Now that Dr. Strange has elaborated on the role that the minister of the word and sacrament plays, next week he's going to look more narrowly at the function and role that the office of elder plays in the church. For more episodes, you can find us on our website at midamerica.edu slash podcasts and wherever you listen to your favorite shows, be sure to search for and subscribe to Mid-America Reformed Seminaries Roundtable. I'm Jared Luchabor. Till next time.